Lord, as we uh, open your word, as we get into what you have to teach us through Genesis, that as we continue the life of Joseph, that we would open up our hearts and see ourselves in that position and, and ask ourselves, what would we do if we were Jacob? What would we do if we were Joseph? Where is my faith at in these situations? As you put us in different places in life, and sometimes we don't understand those places, Lord, that we look back on, uh, upon the life of Joseph and we can say, I can handle this because I know a man who did, who had the faith enough to handle it. In your name, Jesus, amen. Well, we're in Genesis 43. We're going to hit 43 and 44 this week. And, but last week, we ended with Joseph dealing with forgiveness issues. I mean, Joseph was taken from, you know, from a little 17-year-old, and, and his, his brothers didn't like him because he was kind of the, the special child in his view, and, and he acted like it in some way, so he didn't help the situation. So they literally beat him up, threw him down in a well, and sold him off to slavery. They took the coat back to Dad and said, Dad, I'm sorry, He's, you know, the animals got him. And they left it at that. And they didn't really think about it from that point forward, other than I'm sure the guilt and the things of what they've done over the years came up into their lives. And we talked about that, uh, that over the past couple of weeks. But Joseph now is dealing with forgiveness. He's dealing with, now I'm confronted with this that happened so long ago, what do I do with it? And he's working through that. And he's starting to understand the bigger picture of where God has him and, and how he's been relying on God all these years. He's kept the faith all these years, uh, you know, living, uh, living the life in a way that says, I am a faithful believer no matter what situation I'm in, whether it's being accused of, uh, of, of rape or whether it's being in prison or, or whether it's being in, in charge of Potiphar's house or whatever, whatever position he is, he stayed faithful. And now the Lord has him in charge of all the grain, the second command of all of Egypt, uh, because of the dream that he interpreted, by, uh, you know, from the Lord for the king or for the emperor or whatever you want to call the Egyptian ruler there. So now we're in chapter 43, and I love the beginning of this chapter, because come to find out, the brothers went and bought grain from Egypt, and they left a brother, because they had to, because Joseph said, I'm keeping one brother just to keep you guys honest, and they went back home. How much grain did they buy? Well, we know it was a lot. I mean, they got to feed all their families. You know, they had about 70 people there and all the servants and all that kind of stuff. They had all the animals and so forth. So they ate up all this grain. I don't know how long it took them, three months, six months. And their poor brothers, like, still back in Egypt, still in jail and so forth. But Jacob is upset when the brothers get home. Jacob the father, because they left a brother. And they said, well, we're supposed to send back Benjamin. And he goes, I'm not sending my Benjamin. I'm not going to lose him. So, you know, they're kind of stuck. The rest of the family's at home eating away. Jacob said they weren't going back, I guess. I don't know how long, you know, maybe he said at the beginning or maybe he just kind of ignored the situation. It doesn't really say. But you can imagine the thoughts. Did I lose another son? The brothers, did I lose another brother? They didn't know they were, they were headed back or not. Chapter 43, it says, now the, oh, sorry, if you'll switch it to the first slide, I got to pull out my phone. There we go. Now, now that famine was still severe in the land, so when they had eaten all the grain they had brought from Egypt, their father said to them, go back and buy us a little more food. But Judah said to them, the, more, the man warmed us solemnly. 
you will, not, uh, you will not see my face again unless your brother is with you. If you send our brother along with us, we'll go down and buy some food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. Because the man said to us, you will not see my face again unless your brother is with you. Israel asked, and, and see the name switch. Remember Jacob and Israel? Jake, Jacob kind of works in the flesh, and the Lord changed his name to Israel. And when he's, when he's Israel, he's, he's working on the Lord's behalf, so see the name change there. Israel asked, why do you bring this trouble on me by telling, me this, uh, by telling the man you had another brother? I love how he's kind of blaming the kids there, you know. They replied, the man questioned us closely about ourselves and our family. Is your father still living, he asked us. Do you have a, another brother? We simply answered his questions. How were we to know he would say, bring your brother down here? So we look at these guys as a patriarch of our faith. And sometimes we forget that they were men and, and women and children and all the, all the, they're just like us, but we kind of put them up on these pedestals. They're just humans. They're dealing with family issues. As I go off, you know, as I go off this next week and, and deal with the funeral and the cousins, I mean, having 11 adopted children from all over the world, you think that brings up some family issues? I mean, I only had four boys in my family. Imagine 11 children and, well, they had a few of their own. So it's something like 15 children you know, all said and done. So the same thing, they're dealing with family issues. And I talked about the switch of the names here and, and so forth, but you can still act in faith when you have disagreements with each other. So you have the children and the father kind of, you know, uh, disagreeing with each other and they're talking it out. They're arguing in a sense, trying to figure out what to do. Now, is arguing okay? Is disagreement okay? Absolutely. Now, don't take that as, well, Alan just said that, you know, give me permission to scream and holler and fight and throw things. No, 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 no. Disagreeing is okay. How you deal with it is important. I was telling my son yesterday, we went to Morro Bay for the day, and he was out. He's trying to do the skim board, you know, where you throw it down in the shallows, a wooden board, and you try to jump on it, and you go. And he's just getting all frustrated because he's falling, and he's hitting his head, he's falling. I'm just laughing. But, you know, but, but you know, and he's just because he's a perfectionist, and he's getting mad, he's like, hitting his leg and just, you know, he's mad. And I'm like, buddy, Brandon, come on. If you figure out how to deal with this, then it'll be better off for you. Because if you, deal, you figure out how to deal with your struggles in life, then it's always better for you. You go further in life and so forth. And it's the same thing as what we're talking about here. You figure out how to argue, how to disagree. It's important. Don't turn it into sin. How you disagree and argue is just as important as the decision that needs to be made. You can have conflict in a different opinion. This kind of reminds me of the Apostle Paul, you know, and Barnabas disagreeing about taking John Mark on the second missionary journey and all the issues that, that went along with that. You know, Paul was like, I'm, he took off on us last time. There's no way John Mark is going with us. And, and it turned in such a disagreement, they went two different directions in ministry. Now, we would go, oh, man, I can't believe that. But maybe the Lord used that to send ministry in two different paths to affect more people. You just don't know. God went on and used them both. See, we think the Holy Spirit, you know, filled people ought to be on the same page always. Uh, that's just not the case. It doesn't work that way. The Bible says that iron sharpens iron. God allows arguments sometimes. Why? To hone each other. To learn how to work through that conflict like we talk about. Or, you know, or to take you down different paths in life. He allows conflicts to push them apart 
You know, I'd rather have passionate people who disagreed every now and then that worked through that passion than people who just kind of sit there and don't do anything at all. You know, it's like talking to a brick wall, talking to a teenager, you know, or anything like that. Just sometimes it just doesn't work, you know. Well, in verse 8 it says, And Judah said to the Israelist father, Send the boy along with me, and we will go at once, so that, so that we and you and our children may live and not die. I myself will guarantee his safety. You can hold me personally responsible for him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him here before you, I will bear the blame before you all my life. As it is, if we had not delayed, we could have gone and returned twice. He's kind of jabbing his dad a little bit. We could have been there twice now. Come on. We've ran out of grain. We have to go. I mean, uh, you know, we, we, we could have done, been done with this mess by now, Dad. I mean, how long has it been? Six months? And, and you know, Simeon, poor Simeon, he's off in jail, you know. Uh, you know, and man, six months in a, in a prison. Oh, man. Egyptian prison on top of that. Verse 11, it says, And the father said to Israel, or the father Israel said to them, if I must be, if it must be, then do this. Put some of the best products of the land in your bags and take them down to the man as a gift. A little balm and a little honey, some spices and myrrhs, some pistachio nuts and almonds. Take a double amount of silver with you, and for you must return the silver that was put back into your, the mouths of your sacks. Perhaps it was a mistake. Take your brother also and go back to the man at once. And may God Almighty grant you mercy before the man so that he will let your older brother and Benjamin come back with you. As for me, if I am bereaved, I am bereaved. It's kind of interesting. Jacob, which is now acting more like Israel, is being forced to trust God. Imagine that. God putting us in a situation that forces us to decide whether we're going to trust our Lord and Savior or whether we're just going to sit there and wallow in our sorrow. Are we going to trust or not. He's like, fine, fine, take them. You know, just, just do it, okay? That's, just go. Take your extra money. Take all the other stuff. Make sure he knows that you didn't steal the money before. You know, deal with all of that. And Jacob was trying to scheme his way out of everything. But now he has to rely on other people. God deals with all of us in different, you know, a variety of ways. Sometimes a gentle push. You know, I, I love it when I can just give a gentle push for, for my son and he does what I want him to do and, and acts the way I want him to act. What I don't like is when I have to throw him into it. You know what I mean? Or drag him into doing something. And the same thing, the Lord wants to just give us a gentle push. Hey, Alan, go do it. Hey, Alan, you know, versus, Alan, get over here. You know what I'm saying? The tone and stuff, sometimes the Lord has to use that tone with us. Gentle push is much better than dragging somebody around. Or as the Psalms put it in Psalms 32, I'll instruct you and teach you in a way that you should go. I will counsel you with my loving eye on you. Do not be like the horse or the mule who, which has no understanding, but must be controlled by a bit or bridle, or they will not come to you. Many are the woes of the wicked, but the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the one who trusts him. So don't be the child that has to be pulled around and, and got to be directed for every, you know, the bit in the mouth, you know. I mean, wouldn't you love to have a bit in your mouth dragged around? You're going to follow the person because it hurts if you don't. The Lord's sitting there going, don't be like that. You know, it can be liberating to give in to God and say, I can't do it on my own. To be able to just to say, I can't do this 
I need your help, Lord. I need your help, God. Jacob is saying, okay, 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 okay. I will have faith here. I will become Israel here. Do everything that I've said, he says to the children. Kind of reminds me of Esther. You know the story of Esther? You know, for such a, you know, such a time as this, such a place as this, you know, you know, she's like, okay, okay, okay. I will have faith and do what's right. Haman had planned to, to kill all the Jews, and, and King Xerxes didn't, didn't know his wife was Jewish. And we've gone over the story, uh, so many of you know it. But he says, uh, you know, tells Haman, okay, go ahead and kill all the Jews. And she's just going along and not saying anything until her cousin Mordecai comes and says, young lady, you're a Jew. You are going to get killed unless you speak up and you do something. And she finally says, fine, I'll do it. Probably with a little attitude at the beginning, but then she comes around. You're going to lose your head unless you go and do this. And God has put you in this place for this perfect time to do God's will, and now you have a choice. This is the the place that Joseph is in. God put him in the right place at the right time. This is just like us. God puts us in certain places at the right time for us to either step up in faith or not. We have to make a choice to either follow the Lord in whatever position we are in, in that moment or not. Now, if there was a famine in the land, where did they get all these fruits? Where did they get all these pistachios and almonds and, and, and all this kind of stuff? Did they have them stored before the famine hit? Well, as, as in culture in that area and so forth, you would save certain your, your, your special stuff or special occasions, especially in that nomadic culture where if somebody came along and, and, and needed to, to stay the night in your tent, you always accepted them into your household in your tent, and then you would serve them the very best. Uh, I can remember going to, uh, you know, when I, after I became a pastor, I went back and visited my, uh, my former youth pastor. He'd moved to Colorado from Texas, and, and we went and, and stayed a few days and stuff, and she got out the fine china and all this different stuff from the mill. It was just such a privilege the way that, that his wife was treating uh, my wife and I and so forth. And this is how they would do it in the Middle East. They would save these things for this. But what they were lacking was the basic necessity of wheat, you know, we love our carbs. I'm just saying, but I mean, that basic necessity, uh, the main staple that they would live on. They still had some food, but they didn't have these basics. These things weren't available except for in Egypt. So they, you know, you know the grain wasn't available except for in Egypt, and they had all these other things. So, so they took some of these things uh, to Egypt with them to, do, uh, to, to, to bring it to uh, Joseph, which they didn't know was Joseph. Verse 15, it says... So the men took the gifts and the double amount of silver, and Benjamin also. They hurried down to Egypt and presented themselves to Joseph. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of the house, Take these men to my house, slaughter an animal, and prepare a meal, there to eat with me at noon. The man did this as Joseph told him and took the men to Joseph's house. Now the men were frightened when they were taken to his house. They thought, <laughs> We were brought here because of the silver that was put in our sacks the first time. So again, that guilty conscience that's always with the brothers there. He wants to attack us and overpower us and seize us as slaves and take our donkeys. In other words, all the stuff that they brought with them to pay for the new grain. They are still 
afraid. Their guilt is overpowering them and overwhelming them. I mean, they're thinking of what happened to Joseph is now going to happen to them. They're going to be beaten. They're going to be stripped. They're going to be sold into slavery. What did they do to Joseph? That exact thing. Now, they don't know that the minister that they're going to go see is actually Joseph. They're going to eat in Joseph's house. They don't know that yet. Wow. They don't know what to think. First time, this minister yells at them, calls them spies, locks them up for three days. Then the next time he keeps one of them and, you know, and, and keeps one of the, the kids and then sends them all back home. But then they find the payment uh, uh, that they took for the grain actually in their sacks. Now they arrive and now they're going to this minister's house and they're going to have lunch with him. I mean, these guys are, are Bedouins. These are tent dwellers. These are country folk. You know the country folk that come into the big city and they just go, wow, look at that building. You know, it's so tall. My son at Morro Bay yesterday, we went to go have breakfast and he, he looked over out the window at the breakfast place that was right across Morro Rock and he goes, he, he's almost four and he goes, whoa, big rock. You know, and he just kept saying it over and over and we're just dying laughing. We're like, Shh, you know, making a scene and all that kind of stuff. But this is kind of how they are. I mean, these, these guys dwell in tents, not homes. So to go into a home and, and sit down for a dinner, this, this is kind of a big deal. Their heads are spinning, you know. They don't know what to think. They're probably thinking, this guy's nuts. So verse 19, it says, So they went up to Joseph's steward and spoke to him at the entrance of the house. We beg your pardon, our Lord, they said. We come down here for the first time to buy food. But at this place where we're stopped for the night, we opened our sacks and each of us found the silver, the, his silver, the exact weight in the mouth of our bag. So we have brought it back to us. We've also brought the additional silver to buy, uh, with us to buy food. We don't know who put our silvers in our sack. They've been thinking about this for a long time. The first chance they get... I'm sorry, sorry, I, I don't know what happened. Here's the background, here's the story. And that's what they're doing here, you know. And the steward says, it's all right, don't be afraid. Your God, the God of your father has given, your given you treasure in your sacks. I received your silver. So the steward is the guy who probably, you know, was Joseph's interpreter the first time that they met with Joseph earlier. And he understands the, the Hebrew language and so forth. And he seems to be a believer in Joseph's God. He's had that influence on his life. And he's working along with, with Joseph to help bring repentance. And he's telling him, don't be afraid at all. Shalom, he's saying. Peace be with you. So this Egyptian is, sh is saying shalom to them. Because you go back to Hebrew, that's the word that's used there. Shalom, saying, saying, don't worry. Everything is fine here. Then he brought Simeon out to them. So Simeon comes out. Doesn't say what he said to him, but, but it's been a long time. I'm sure he's upset with them. Where have you been? I've been stuck here. You know, kind of the low voices. You know, you're not trying to make a scene in the house. You know, he's upset probably, you know. But maybe he's relieved. We don't, we don't really know. Verse 24, the steward took the men into Joseph's house, gave them water, washed their feet, and provided fodder uh, for their donkeys. They prepared the gifts for Joseph's arrival at noon. I mean, they were in there probably setting it all out, getting it all, you know, presentation. Because they had heard that they were to eat there. When Joseph came home, they presented the, uh, to him the gifts they had brought into the house, and they bowed down before him to the ground. 
He asked them how they were, and they said, and then said, how is your aged father you told me about? Is he still living? So they're preparing everything just right. He comes home, and he asks them about the father. I mean, he, you know, could you imagine? He remembers the whole conversation. He remembers, you know, so what's going through their heads here? You know, it's been six months or so. Anything could happen. They replied, verse 28, your servant, our father, is still alive and well. And they bowed down, prostrated themselves before him. So they're bowing down. He asks them a question. One of them pops up, answers the question, and then pops right back down because this is an Egyptian official giving them their due in, uh, in a sense, trying not to upset him. Verse 29, as, you looked, as he looked about and saw his brother Benjamin, his own mother's son, he asked, is this your youngest brother, the one you told me about? You gotta remember, Joseph has not seen Benjamin since he was 10 years old. Huh, he doesn't really know him. Is this who he, I mean, is this him? He's asking because he hasn't seen him. And he said, God be gracious to you, my son. Deeply moved at the sight of his brother, Joseph hurried out and looked for a place to weep. He went to his private room and wept there. Joseph is full of emotion at this point. He is overwhelmed. Can this really be happening? Did, what, am I off on the scripture? Okay, well, you figure it out back there for me. <laughs> so Joseph is full of emotions. Y'all can just listen to the word, okay? You don't have to read it this time, you know. But Joseph is just over, he's like, I have a chance to be with my family. Verse 31, it says, after he washed his face, he came out and controlling himself said, serve the food. They served him by himself, the brothers uh, by themselves, and the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves, because Egyptians could not eat with Hebrews, for that is detestable to Egyptians. So basically what you have down here for dinner is you have three different tables set up in whatever dining hall, whatever area they're eating at. One for Joseph, because he is an official and he eats by himself unless he's with other officials. One for all the brothers, because, you know, Egyptians, they don't, they don't eat with those Hebrews. No, I mean, they're just kind of, you know, sheep people. No, we don't eat with sheep people, okay? So that's kind of the culture, what was going on there. And one for the other Egyptians that would have been a part of the household, okay? So you have three different tables right here. You know, Egypt at this uh, point in history was the most racially segregated country in the world because this is why, you know, Egyptians believed they descended from gods. So a god could not eat with another culture, you know, how screwed up is that? But that's what they thought. You know, they thought everybody else was just less than them. So there's very little mixing here. Even Joseph wouldn't eat with, you know, the shepherds and the lowest of the low and so forth. So when the, you know, the family actually moves, eventually moves to Egypt, where do they end up? Way over there up in the land of Goshen, okay? Away from the main Egyptians. You know, Joseph's family were going to honor his family. They were revered. They were, they were treated very well for the first some odd years until Joseph uh, passes away. And then it slowly turns into to slavery for them. But, you know, to me, this is the hand of God also. Because it separates God's children from the Egyptians. Because at this point... You know, over time, the, the influence would take home, uh, take hold of them, and some of them would end up worshiping the Egyptian gods. So God was not separating them because of any other reason other than the worship aspect. 
Other than, you know, how we tell our children, don't go out there and date somebody who doesn't have the same belief as you, as a, as a non-Christian, because what is it going to do? It's going to influence you one day. So, you know, it's, it's not a, we hate them, let's separate out. It's a influencing, and this is what the Lord was trying to do, is keep them separated because of the influence. Today, you know, how does this affect us? Well, we shouldn't separate ourselves because of culture or skin color or any other reason along those lines. Where we should separate ourselves is part of, coming, you know, part of us becoming like the world around us. God calls us to be different. Different in what we like. Different in our entertainment. Different in what we go and watch and see. Different in, in how we act. Different in what movies or entertainment we, we would go to. I was talking to a friend of mine and um, we pick up our children at the same time every day at school and I was talking to him and he's a Christian and, and the, the, oh what is it the, the, the show that just ended on HBO uh, Game of Thrones see that's sad that we all know what it is right I just can't remember it up here and he goes yeah he goes I got a special package with my TV thing so I got HBO free for so long and he goes so everybody kept talking about it so I put it on to see what it was and he's going oh my lands I got Christian friends in the church going, this is so awesome. And he going, and I won't tell you, well, I mean, yeah, we'll just leave it at that. It's not Christian-like at all, okay? The things that happen, we should not be, we are called to be different in everything. They went from 70 people to millions, about 4 million people during 400 years because the Lord separated them. If they'd stayed in Canaan, they probably would have assimilated into the Canaanite society and, you know, and, and the culture and all the things where they were doing baby sacrifices and all these d different things that were going on there and, and how bad that was. So you, you would think, so Alan, are, are you saying that, that God allowed a famine into a land to force this family to seek food in Egypt that led them to eventually move there? Yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying. We get so wrapped up that we forget that God uses earth. He uses the earth. He uses famines. He uses wars. He uses nations to do his will at certain times. God arranged Joseph to go ahead of them. Think about that for a second. God arranged Joseph to go ahead of them. Oh, wait, wait, wait. No, but his, his brothers did all that. Yeah, God arranged Joseph to go ahead of them. That's amazing to me. That God would allow Joseph to go through a terrible situation to do the Lord's will in the end. Wow. But we get so wrapped up in ourselves. Joseph was a type of Christ, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago. He went through a terrible situation, a terrible time, to end up being their Savior. As Jesus went through a terrible situation, a terrible time, to end up being our Savior. It's a foreshadowing of what was to come. Verse 33, there it is. The man had been seated before him in, in the order of their ages, from the firstborn to the youngest, so that they looked at each other in astonishment. So without talking to them about, okay, are you the oldest or are you the youngest? Joseph already knows this. They don't understand it. He knows this. He just seats them in that order. You know, did they have little nameplates or whatever? I don't know. But he seated them, you know, in, the, in that order. And they're looking at each other. How, how did this, how does he, you know, 
Statistically, if you did not know the brothers, it would be like one in 40 million chance that you could take 10 brothers or 11 brothers, you know, or 10 brothers at that point and seat them in, in the correct birth order, you know. So they're, they're really amazed about this. But, you know, he already knows. They just don't know that. Verse 34, when the portions were served uh, to them from Joseph's table, and the Hebrew actually indicates that Joseph served them here. And again, this is the type of Christ, Christ serving us, okay? Benjamin's portion was five times as much as anyone else's. So they feasted and drank freely with him. So things kind of lighten up a little bit. The mood's kind of lightening up. Uh, chapter 44. Now Joseph gave these instructions to the steward of the house. Fill them in sacks with the, as much food as they can carry and put each man's silver in the mouth of his sack. Then put my cup, the silver one, in the mouth of the youngest one's sack, along with the silver from his grain. And he did as Joseph said. As morning dawned, the men were sent on their way with their donkeys. This has been a great trip. Everybody's feeling great. Things went well. The dinner, they didn't get thrown in the prison. Everybody's going home. You know, so they're feeling pretty good. They're happy. Time to get going. Let's go home. Verse 4. They had not gone far from the city when Joseph said to the steward, go after these men at once and you will catch up to them. Say to them, why have you repaid good with evil? Isn't this the cup my master drinks from and also uses for divination? This is a wicked thing you have done. Now, do I think that Joseph actually uh, used it for divination? No, I don't think that's what he used it for. I think Joseph's playing a game here. Um, uh, Egyptian officials did a lot of stuff with divinations, but Joseph was a believer, so I don't think he went along with that. I think he's just trying to scare them a little bit. Um, I, I think it's funny he's been away from home for so long, but he's still his father's child. Who did he learn from? Jacob. Jacob is what? The deceiver. The one that always played games. The one that was always thinking and conniving. Always. So Joseph's got a little bit of that in him to scheme. And Joseph's doing the same thing, but a little different way. This accusation is a hard one. Why have you repaid good? I mean, why have you repaid good with evil? Joseph is kind of alluding to their past. Joseph brought them food. They beat him and threw him in a well and sold him. Why are you repaying good with evil? Kind of bringing that up in a sense. Uh, you know, I, they sold him into slavery. You know, they're returning good from evil. Part of it, this was part of God's plan. Returning good for good. Or, let me rephrase this. When you return good for evil, in other words, you give good when somebody gives you evil, that's part of God's ways. Now, returning good for good or evil for evil, that's just being human. Okay? If you return evil for good, that's just being like the devil. That's just being demonic, okay? And the way we act. So Joseph is saying to these guys, your, your actions here are from Satan. I mean, this is a big accusation here. Verse 8, it says, when he caught up with them, he repeated these words to them. But they said to him, why does my Lord say such things? Far be it for your servants to do anything like that. We even brought back to you the, from the land of Canaan the silver we found inside the mouths of our sacks. So why would we, we steal silver or gold from your master's house? If any of our servants is found with it, he will die and the rest of us will become the Lord's slaves. Uh, th they know they have done nothing wrong. In fact, 
You can see how good they've kind of become. Joseph has been wondering, have they really changed in their ways? They even returned the silver from the last trip. They were so confident of it that they based their future on it. This kind of reflects our society. We're so confident of what we've done. We're so confident of our innocence that we believe that we will escape judgment on the judgment day. You go out there in the world and you ask people, and that's what they will tell you. I'm innocent. I, I, I know people a lot worse than I am. You know? I, if, look at what so-and-so did. I mean, I'm not in prison. I didn't do these things. We all think we're good people. But when we read the word, come to find out, we're not really good people. The Lord is the one that makes us good as we, as we kind of change our lives to reflect what we believe, as we change our lives to become like Jesus. Jesus is the goodness. And the only way to goodness is through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. See, goodness is perfection, moral perfection. And that only comes through the blood of Christ covering us. Because the wages of sin is what? Death. We all stand before the, you know, our God either in our own righteousness or in the righteousness of Christ that clothed us once we accept Jesus. Verse 9, it says, if any of the servants is found to have it, he will die, and the rest of us will become my Lord's slaves. Very well then, he said, let it be as you say, whoever is found to have it will become my slave, and the rest of you are free from blame. So he makes sure that the servants say, well, no one's going to die here. You're not all going to be sold off in slaves. But the one who has it, they're staying right here with me. And he's kind of set this whole thing up. And again, you know, again, with a type of, uh, of Christ that Joseph is here, he's not going to punish. Okay, say the, the youngest brother, Benjamin, actually did steal this cup, okay? Uh, but we know he didn't, but say he did. Joseph is saying, well, I'm not going to punish all of you for his sin. And this is the same thing as, you know, the great white throne judgment. Everyone will answer for their own actions. We're not going to answer for somebody else's uh, actions. We don't get a blanket judgment. Verse 11, it says, each of them quickly lowered his sack to the ground and opened it. Then the steward proceeded to search, beginning with the oldest and ending with the youngest. And the, and the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. They don't even really fuss about this. They just... Whatever happens, happens, because they know that they, they don't have anything to be able to, you know, they have no leverage here. Verse 13, at this, they tore their clothes, then they all loaded their donkeys and returned to the city. All the way, you can imagine them saying, Benjamin, what did you do, Benjamin? Why did you do this? You can imagine the conversation going on there. Verse 14, Joseph was still in the house when Judah and his brothers came in, and they threw themselves to the ground before him. Joseph said to them, what is it you have done? Don't you know that a man like me can find things out of divination? And Joseph, in a sense, is still pretending to be the Egyptian official. He doesn't really practice this stuff, uh, but he's saying, don't you know that I know all things? You know, the, kind of that, that lording it over people, kind of that attitude. Uh, so they don't even hide it. They're alluding to the to the future where the real Jesus does know all things. And again, going back to the type of Christ, nothing is hidden from Jesus' sight. Verse 16, it says, what can we say to my Lord? Judah replied, 
What can we say? How can we prove our innocence? God has uncovered your, your servant's guilt. We are now, my Lord, slaves. We ourselves and the one who found to have the cup. It's interesting. I think this is the confession that Joseph has been waiting for. Judah is saying, God has revealed our sins. And I don't think it's uh, dealing with the cup. I think just all the guilt that's gone on there for what happened, you know, it's been weighing on them for over 22 years of what they did. And forgiveness only comes through confession. Joseph says the type of Christ has been waiting on the confession. The Bible says what? If we confess our sins, he is able to do what? To forgive us and to cleanse us. If we confess it. Confess means to say the same thing. Lord, I've done this. I agree that you know that I've done this. And that's what confession is. And forgiveness only comes through that. We're saying, Lord, you are right. I am a sinner. He wants us to confess completely. And for Judah, this is it. He knows that they didn't do a thing, but God is showing them that their sin has caught up to them. And, and now he's confronting, with it, or confronting them with it. What are you going to do with that? Verse 17, it says, But Joseph said, Far be it for me to do such a thing. Only the man who was found to have the cup will become my slave. The rest of you go back to your father in peace. So again, God doesn't punish the righteous with the wicked. And again, we keep alluding back to what we talked about last week, the type of Christ here. Verse 18, Then Judah went up to him and said, Pardon your servant, my Lord. Let me speak to a word to my Lord. Do not be angry with your servant, though you are equal to Pharaoh himself. And this is amazing to me what he says here. The next part, he, he makes a, a plea, a very selfless plea. Last time he could care less when Joseph was sold into slavery. You know what I'm saying? He didn't care what happened. He'd get the little punk out of here, you know. But now Joseph is seeing how they're going to handle it this time. He says in verse 19, My Lord asked the servants, Do you have a father or brother? And we answered, We have an aged father. And there is a young son born to him in his old age. His brother is dead, and he is the only one of his mother's sons left. And his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, Bring him down to me so I can see him for myself. And we said to my Lord, The boy cannot leave his father. If he leaves, his father will die. But you told your servants, unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you will not see my face again. When we go back to your servant's father, we told him what, uh, what my Lord had said. Then our father said, go back and buy a little more food. But we said, we cannot go. Only, young, only if the youngest brother is with us will we go. We cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Your servant, my father, said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons. One of them went away, and I said, he has surely been torn to pieces, and I have not seen him since. So you see the confession coming out. Joseph hasn't heard all this kind of stuff. Verse 29, if you take one uh, from me, to, if you take this one from me too, and harm him, harm comes to him, you will bring my, my gray head down to the grave in misery. So now, if my boy is not with us when I go back, to your uh, servant, my father, and if my father, whose life is closely bound up with his son's life, sees that the boy isn't there, he will die. 
Your servants will bring the gray head of our father down to the grave in sorrow. Your servant guaranteed the boy's safety to my father. I said, if I do not bring him back, I will bear the blame, my, uh, blame before you, my father, all my life. Now then, please let your servant remain here as the Lord's slave in place of the boy. And let the boy return to his brothers. How can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? No, do not let me see the misery that would come to my father. This is huge. This is big. Remember, it was Judah who had the idea to sell Joseph into slavery in the first place. Judah's changed so much now, he is offering himself to become a slave in his brother's place. This test is over for Joseph. This changes everything because he sees a change in his brother's lives. The next chapter, we're going to see Joseph. He can't hold back any longer. We will see how Joseph uh, has come to terms where, where God has placed him and everything he's gone through, how he got to the place that he's at, what God expects for him, and the forgiving attitude that, that brings because God is with him. I, I'm amazed what we can accomplish when God is with us. When we look for the Lord, when we ask the Lord, I need your help in this situation, I'm amazed at what we can do. That if we look at our circumstances from God's perspective and understand that he is there. Now, we may have gotten to that circumstance or situation because of our sin. We may have gotten there because of the sin of other people have kind of pushed us that direction. But we need to remember God is still there. And because of that... We have a purpose, the purpose of living life for our Lord and Savior, to bring glory to God no matter the situation. So my question is this, what situation does God have you in? Remember, Joseph went through different stages, different highs and lowest, in the palace, out of the palace, in charge, in charge in jail, <laughs> ups and downs. Don't forget me when you leave this jail. Then he was forgotten. Ups and downs. But he relied on God because he understood that God was with him. So my second question is this. Do you feel that God is with you? I mean, really, do you feel that God is with you? If yes, keep going that direction. Keep praising the Lord. Keep saying, Lord, take me through whatever situation I'm in. If not, what are you doing or not doing that may be causing these feelings? Because as Christians, we know what? God is everywhere. So if God is everywhere, why don't we feel his presence? Well, I think it's simple. God cannot speak to you if you haven't confessed your sin. You're not going to have that relationship if you haven't confessed it. God cannot speak to you if you're not allowing him to speak to you through his word. If you're not in the word of God, then how can God speak to you? You know, it's like a, you know, two people in love. If you never go and do anything together, you never talk on the phone, you never see each other, is that relationship being built and going anywhere? No. No. We've got to be in his word. God cannot speak to you if you're showing up, but you're really not worshiping him. 
If you're coming and listening to, to, to sermons and, and getting into the Word, but you're not applying it to your life, God's not necessarily going to be speaking to you. If you do these things, and I want to say simple things, but it's not always so simple, it's one step at a time, then God can speak to you. But ultimately, it boils down to this. Why don't we feel God's presence? The answer is sin. Sin. We need to take God seriously. And if you take God seriously and start confessing your sin, then he can speak with you, and you will start feeling his presence in your life. Amen? Amen. Well, let's pray. Lord, I thank you for a man like Joseph that went through so much that we can see his faith, that we can understand that, that we can go through a lot in life, and you are there with us. I thank you for the situations that you put us in, that we may grow out of those situations, that we may get to a point in our life where we can look to you and say, I have faith in you, Lord. I am following you no matter what happens in the middle of this situation. I thank you so much for going to the cross and dying for me, Lord. And we pray for forgiveness of our sins. May you point them out to us so we can, so we can confess those to you. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord's face shine down upon you and watch over you this week. And may you feel his presence. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Amen.